We drove the ute over 400 kilometres to Dubbo and interviewed Peter Gibbs for Faith Runs Deep at Apex Oval. We were battling the noise of lawnmowers and planes to capture his amazing life story. It was a great privilege for me and our crew to hear from Peter, a former rugby league player whose big break came when he got a call from the legendary Arthur Beetson. Dealing with alcohol dependency and injuries, Peter's league career was disappointingly short-lived. When his sister tragically died in police custody, Peter was given the choice of inciting a riot in Bawarana or choosing peace and eventual forgiveness. Peter's faith and wisdom have been hard-earned, and we are thankful to share his story with you today. I'm Carl Fays, and this is my interview with Peter Gibbs. So, Peter, tell us where you grew up. I grew up in a little place called Will Maringle. It's west of Burke. Um, it's about a five-hour, six-hour drive from Dubbo. Still very remote little place. Like, it's on the, it's a tributary off the Darling River. It's the Kulgoa River. And the little river ran right next to our mission. And so whether you went over a little levee and you dived in the river. Um, I thought it was a big river <laughs> until I took my kids back there when they were teenagers and you could walk across it and not get your feet wet. Um, and they said, Dad, where's this big river you grew up on? Uh, um, it's a very sad little community though now, brother. It's a very small little remote community. Um, all those old people are gone. Everything's changed. Yeah. Nothing stays the same. Yeah. But the love for my people is still there. Yeah. Did you say it was a mission station? Yes, a mission station. So when the Australian New Zealand Wool Company was setting up wool in the outback in the early days, uh, Will Maringle was one of the communities that was uh, identified because the, 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 the community is right on the banks of a, the river. It's yeah. a tributary off the Darling. The water is, was sufficient. And the people lived there because the water was there. Yeah. And it, even in the most severest of droughts, that water was there to sustain people. And um, so it was, a, 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 you know, it was an obvious choice for, yeah. to grow wool. Well, that meant uh, lots of uh, work for our people in the, in the, in the main. Uh, my family were all shearers. Mm. Uh, so I grew up in the shearing industry as well, as we all did. You, the shearing shed is built on the community. You look back now, was it, was it a good childhood? I get asked that question a lot, and it was the toughest childhood. It was uh, not a great community to grow up in. Uh, you, had, you had your structure in your family, but it's very remote. We never had a police station. And when you get remoteness and you mix in grog uh, with that, just ask the women and children. It was awful. Yeah. Awful time, but you still had your family, you still had grandma yeah. to look after us and try and keep things together. And you still had my old pop, and I can still see him today, trying to prevent us from going down the tube. Wow. Um, 100 kilometres away to the nearest police station. So when I look back and to what I know now, there was bits and pieces that was something that I would cherish, mm -hmm. but in the main, it was not a nice place um, because of all of that. I think that that is the, some of the parts that overtake, you know, the, the good part and the richness that can come about from living in a, in a remote community. 
um, where you've got a good family, solid family structure. Yeah. But I grew up in the time when grog started to infiltrate. Yeah. And as a little kid, uh, my memories uh, are not good. Yeah. Let's jump forward in your life story. At, at 15, you're chosen to play football for, for the Australian uh, juniors. How did that happen? It was just amazing because uh, the Australian government set up some hostels around uh, Australia to give remote kids a chance at education. But I'd grown up in Wilmaringle and uh, my community was affiliated with the Catholic Church in those days. So we got to go to a Catholic boarding school after year six. So I'd already had a, a, a bit of a stint at boarding school, um, but I felt, still felt lost. And I felt, still felt like I wasn't able to just fly. And as a kid on, on any mission, uh, rugby league is a dream. Uh, we grew up listening to the radio. We had no TVs, but our families used to gather around cars, a car and turn the ABC on, listen to the footy. So I always wanted to be an NRL player. It was just the dream. And you can hear kids talking about that even today. I was no different. Mm. And so when we got the opportunity to go away to school, I always felt this is my chance uh, to go away and show people what I can do. It was the greatest thing because you got selected. Yeah. But the most important person in my life wasn't there. My mum died when I was a young kid. Oh, so by the time I could fly and really show people what I can do as a player, the one person I really wanted to be there wasn't there. Mm. So there was this mixed up young boy who would just go and play the best I could, but look in the grandstand or around car parks, looking for my mum mm. to be there to say, well done, son. She wasn't there. There was just this propelling me to be the best I could. Yeah. So in effect, I could really play but something was holding me back. Yeah. And so it's not unusual for, for boys to miss their mums. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like a usual thing. Yeah. When you're so far away and you don't have grandma either, uh, and you haven't got mum to ring up, to talk to, to write a letter to, or to come and watch you play, there was something still holding me back. And I reckon I could have been better. Yeah. But when I made the Australian uh, under 15 side, I thought, I celebrated on the train home that night all of my awards and my achievement that I but the one person it just was a lonely trip home on that train yeah. um, because I didn't have mum to go home to just to celebrate that little bit of achievement with so whilst it for me was a, a mountain I'd climbed I just didn't have a to celebrate with. So for you as a young man Sport and sporting success was sort of a bittersweet experience. It was because I could see um, sport being uh, to, to bring me out of poverty, yeah. very impoverished. We had, even though we had work in our remote communities and I can see uh, what my friends, uh, my, my, I can see what my football colleagues uh, and, and our sporting success was bringing about change in their life. And I wanted to pursue that. A lot of my mates, their fathers were Australian players and well-known league identities. And so I had this mixed up world. I could see all that, then I can see my impoverished families back home as well. I can see such disadvantage. And, and so I was torn in many ways about whether I would leave and pursue this or 
go back home and, and, and put my effort into that. So it was like, at a very young age, I was torn. So your sporting break is going to play for Easts. What was that like, moving to the big city? Well, I think if you were an Aboriginal young footballer um, in my time, Arthur Beaton was the pinnacle. Yeah. He, he was the absolute legend of rugby league. And in our community, he was the icon. So to receive a phone call from Arthur Beetson to say, come and play for, come and play under me, um, I was on the next plane. Yeah. And because it, it's like a dream to be able to play rugby league on the big stage, but to also to receive that call from such a, a, an icon of the game, someone who says, I know that you, you're, you're good enough to play down here and, and before I retire, I want to coach you. So I was on the plane yeah. um, and I was living in Burke at the time. And I know it was like a crossroads in my life too, as I, I was getting to that age where if you're gonna make it in Sydney, it, it needed to be now. Yep. And so I received the call at the right time, right age. I was very fit and my mentality was that I wanted to be a, a top level rugby league player. Yeah. So it all collided and I was playing, uh, I was received that call on one day and a few days later I was in his, in his team running out yeah. at Leichhardt Oval and it was like, I, this is a dream. Um, but for someone like him to just yep. to be in the room, to be around, uh, I lived with him as well when I was there. Um, for me, that was, I thought, that's where I'm going. What was it like that first day running out? How'd you play? It was amazing because uh, the football stadium was the, the Roosters' own ground and it was going to be opened uh, under our first game. And when I ran out there against South Sydney, I played reserve grade for the Roosters and to run out and just hear the crowd. Yeah. And a few days you know, before that, really I was back home in, in, in Burke. And so it was just an amazing, amazing experience. And I know even young kids from the country now still talk about when they get a chance to go to Sydney and you hear that same voice and, and that was coming out of me at the same time all those years ago. But I really wanted to play under Arthur and I really wanted to fo follow my cousin Ron, yeah. who was a, a legendary rugby league player and he'd come from Burke as well and uh, did well both here in Australia and overseas. And so I had some role models that I wanted to follow. Sydney life, pretty different from, from the country. How did that affect you? Yeah, m amazingly effective on me, uh, major impact. Uh, I wasn't ready for it. Um, and unfortunately it can have a negative impact on mm. a young boys from the bush as well as it will with anybody, but if you're not prepared for it, yeah. um, it can take you down the wrong track. So whilst you sort of want to focus on the things that you came here for, um, I wasn't the first and I won't be the last who, who, who fell, uh, uh, went down the wrong track. Yeah, and, and that was in the area of alcohol, grog, drinking? At the height of my career, at the height of my opportunity, uh, the, grog's, uh, the grog was there and a major part of it, like it is back in Wilmaringal, yeah. in Burke and Bree where I grew up, you know, grog is the major issue for our people and it still is today, um, but it certainly was my issue as well when I went to Sydney. Now that didn't finish your career though, what did? It's, it's like, if you go out and train every day and, you, and your focus is absolutely being uh, the best you can be on the, on the field, you can, still, you can still, you know, go some places. But if there's other things that you need to address, you think that you can do it all at a young as a young person, you think you can deal with it all. You know, the loss of mum and not having her and the grog and I'm still training hard and I am still can play, so I'm sure I can get through this. Um, but then injuries come. Okay. 
and I broke my arm. So you had time when you don't have all those other things. And for me, the thing that I turned to the most was the grog because there was sit down time. There was a lot of money involved, um, but you find other things to get involved in. And unfortunately for me, grog was there. Yeah. Your, your career, you only last a couple of years in Sydney. You end up coming back. What's it like coming back? It's like a biggest disappointment. It's like I let so many people down. I, my focus on becoming the best I could be on the rugby league field was, was absolutely a part of my, my whole being. It, I trained hard every day. I put so much effort and time and gave up so much. Uh, but I was still drinking too much, way too much. And when the injuries just took away everything and you think it's just a broken arm, but what it does, it sets you back. Mm. It sets you back beyond other players who are there to, to be the best they can be too. And you, your time in the pecking order is only, there's a little limited time. Yeah. And you can lose that. And I didn't understand it. I just didn't understand how big it, that opportunity was. And um, it's something that I'll always uh, remember as a time when you get this time, don't waste it. This podcast is brought to you by the Ministry of Olive Tree Media. Our vision is to create a library of resources that tell the story of the game-changing message of Jesus. This interview was recorded for our latest documentary, Faith Runs Deep. Our other award-winning series, Jesus the Game Changer and Towards Belief, plus many other small group, church and school series are available on our Watch Plus platform for a small monthly partnership. As you partner with us, you not only get access to compelling video content and interactive discussion guides, but you also support the creation of more resources that help share the gospel message. To become a partner and get access to Faith Runs Deep, visit olivetreemedia.com.au. So, Peter, you're back in this area, you're dealing with all of that disappointment. Then so, there's an incident with your sister, what happens? Yeah, so I started to straighten my life out after, after footy and I really felt then that I could now de dedicate my life to helping Aboriginal people overcome disadvantage. And I remembered what my nan said about helping our people, go away, get educated, see the world, come back and help. And so I tried to still play footy, I still tried to be a coach, I still tried to be a really good professional person in our community and a role model uh, for other kids. Um, and then in 1997, uh, I got a call uh, from my auntie to say that there was an incident in the Brewarrina police cells. And Brewarrina is a place where we were born and raised. Um, and because it was the closest hospital to, Bre to our little community, Will Maringle. And so you grow up, you know everybody, you got people around you, but to know that something happened with my sister uh, was a total shock to my, my, my shock, shock to the core and my world just turned upside down again. Yeah. What had happened with your sister? So my, my sister in the middle of the day was locked up for drunkenness uh, in the middle of the day in, in Brewarrina. Um, and if you know anything about deaths in custody, 10 years before there was also a death in custody in 1987 and that community erupted into violence uh, and my family were involved at the, at the shock of a, a person dying in police custody in our little town. So 10 years later, I knew what I was presented with, that this couldn't happen again. I'd just spent all my 
uh, uh, parts of my life dedicating it to improving yep. relationships and opportunities for Aboriginal people. How can this happen? And after the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody starting in 1988, I thought all these problems were sorted. Not to realise in 1997 my sister would die in the same police cell as the one who did in 1987. Wow. In 87 there was a riot. What happened in 97? We were absolutely presented with the opportunity to do exactly the same thing. Yeah. I was the eldest brother uh, of, of, uh, of four um, and in our, in our community uh, people see me as a leader, people see me as the sort of front runner to many things, they'll consult me on, on issues and on this one I was absolutely consulted about we would take the police on, burn Brewarrina to the ground and lots of people would get hurt. Mm. That's what I was presented with within a day of, of my sister passing away. Um, and that's when this story all changed. My life had changed when I was presented with that opportunity. And when we made the decision that there was not, that was not going to happen under uh, our family's uh, decision making, uh, and we wanted something positive to come from Fiona's death. Yeah. And we didn't know what that was going to be. We had no idea, but we didn't want it to be a legacy of rights and people being, being hurt and the community being burnt to the ground, which what was presented. So uh, I believe the Lord had his hand on me right then, even before I, I made a decision to follow him for the rest of my life. That's when I was presented with, uh, I felt the hand of the Lord being on my life because I was not a sensible man. I made all these wrong decisions and I was stuffing up my life with all these wrong things. But when I was presented with this opportunity, I knew it was the right thing to do, wow. uh, to stand up for what is right. Yeah. Uh, and it was the right time to call on all of that leadership that I was talking about. And I was right at that crossroad when I'm so glad I made that positive decision. Yeah. You were saying that Christian faith wasn't a part of your life then. How did it become part of your life? The Christian uh, faith was, has, has always been a part of my life. My grandmother, on our little community, used to take us out whenever missionaries came to our, our mission and listen to the gospel. And my, my grandmother was a Christian. And as a little baby, uh, amongst all the problems out there in our community, she used to hold us in place in our beds and, and pray for us and sing to us and restore this... Um, for us, when we were so terrified what was going on outside our home, um, she quelled that with prayer and reading to us and singing to us. So as a little boy, I remember, my mother was also a Christian. Mm. So Christian faith was always in our family. So I knew the, I knew the truth as a little boy. I met this beautiful man called Paul Rowe in Burke many years later and I sat in his kitchen table and he prayed for me and I made a decision then that I would follow the Lord. I knew exactly what I was doing at that young age but I didn't understand completely what the Lord had for me, had in store for me. So in many ways I went, ran my own race for a few years but this time when Fiona passed away I was bought and shuddered to a halt because I was just running out of control. And that was the time when I really started to reconsider what it is that the Lord had in store for me. Yeah. Not what everybody else was talking about. 
I could be this champion rugby league player and I could make all this money and I can overcome this advantage. What has the Lord got in store for me? And that was the time when I really started to understand, sit quiet and listen to the Lord. That was the time. Wow. So here, here's this, this change in your life. How, how, did, how did that unfold? It's amazing. It's, it's just amazing because I was just running out of control. I was a person who was such a good leader in the community, a really honest man, I thought, but my life was actually going out of control. And so you were living this sort of life and it was such an imbalanced one. Inside I was hurting so much, mate. Anger and hurt and, and inside was overcoming me. You know, and it was only this time after Fiona's death that I really sit down and understand what it is that the Lord had called me for yeah. and what I was actually running away from yeah. when it was a really a logical decision, but I would not make that decision. Yeah. And it was like a man just on this other mission when the Lord has got something for you. Yeah. And it was so obvious to me. And then it all changed. Yeah. What sort of things changed for you? I met this beautiful woman. That's always a good thing. <laughs> she was just the most beautiful thing. And she'd also had a, a tough upbringing. Yeah. Christianity was in her life as well. She made a decision before our first baby was born that she would give her life to Jesus and go back to what it is that she knew what she was running away from. So in the midst of my sister passing away, she was there. Yeah. She would not stop praying for me. I don't know how difficult it must have been for her to live with me through those turbulent couple of years. Mm. And, but she just would not give up. And she just kept praying for me. She'd invite me to church. She'd in, uh, lay in bed reading to me. And in many ways, I knew exactly what she was doing. And I was so happy for her, but I was sort of in many ways happy to live my life too, which is grog and footy and work and all the other things. Um, but then there came that crunch when I knew I couldn't deal with it anymore. Yeah. Wow. You just opened your life to Jesus again? I made the decision that I would end my life. Really? So I said goodbye to one night. Well, Pete. And if you know anything about the Newell Highway, I did a study when I, in my work, 1,200 trucks per day travel through the Newell Highway, through our hometown of Parks at the time, 1,200 trucks. So I made the decision that I would take my car, park it somewhere close and pick one of those 1,200 because they literally came past every few minutes. So this night I made the decision that I couldn't deal with the pain anymore. Parked my car and then there was no trucks. There was just no trucks. And in the space of 10 minutes, the Holy Spirit dealt with the devil's playground. Started to bring back memory of scripture. Started to bring back the memories of my nan praying for me. Started to bring back the scriptures that my grandmother had quoted to me. Bring back those little gospel messages, those started to change everything in my mind. And she said, son, you are going to be a leader 
you are going to come back here into your community and be the man God had called you to be. So in the space of that 10 minutes of waiting for a truck, when it could have been all over, I made the decision that I would call on the Lord and said, Lord, if you're real and I know you are, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. But please help me deal with the pain. I can't deal with this pain anymore. On my drive back to, to talk to my beautiful wife and I told her that story, everything had changed. Everything. A few days later, we go home to Burke where my uncle is a pastor of a church out there. And he's singing this song in preparation for church. There was just my uncle, his guitar, and me and my little baby. And he started to sing this song and was about a man running away from the Lord. And it's called, Jesus, You Stop Me From Running. It was written by an Aboriginal pastor, but it was just like my testimony. Yeah. I get up from the back of the church. I've never heard that song before. And I got up with my little daughter and I walked towards my uncle who was up the front. And he could see me coming and he knew exactly what had just happened in my life. And he said he was just taking off his guitar because he could see a little boy so hurt and troubled. And I said, Uncle, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Can you pray for me? And he just held me. And he just held me and he said, I was like a little boy trembling. And from that day on, I've served the Lord passionately with all of my heart because I knew I could not run anymore. And it was the time in my life when I most needed him. He was always there. It's just then I made the decision that that is what I was going to do with my life and nothing else was going to get in the way. You didn't go into church ministry, you went into community development and making a difference, especially in the relationship between Indigenous young people and police. What did you do? So at the death of my sister in 1997, in terms of the accusations are made towards police, there were many parts of my family who really wanted to disturb the peace, particularly between our local people and the police. And in many cases, in many ways, it's still there today. But when we made the decision that it wasn't going to happen in funeral week, and I said that I wanted to get a legacy, a different legacy from Fiona's death, I could really see with my skills and the opportunities that I could see around the country and internationally, that we could do something really positive. And I looked at the New South Wales Police and I did not see too many Aboriginal people working in uh, the police force, but I even less so in the western part of the state. There was one or two, but what I could see is the potential to make, some, make a change, make something, uh, we could make a contribution. And I started to formulate a plan that could train and develop Aboriginal young people, particularly to go and uh, work in New South Wales Police and then come back to our communities to help make that social change. So we could uh, develop our relationship, we can uh, you know, get jobs, which is the jobs in these communities, there's usually a school, 
a hospital and a police station. Well, I can see potential for real jobs for these young people to give them hope. Um, so to me, it just made sense, but it wasn't that simple. No. I got lots of lots of pushback from my own family. Why are you doing something like this for police when they just uh, did this with, to your sister? Mm -hmm. I got that. I got the other side as there's, you know, black people don't want to be police officers. And then I got it from New South Wales Police that we already have a recruitment process. We don't need to change anything. So I was getting it the so much negatives from, from all the other different sort of aspects. But I pushed on. Because when I went to schools, kids were telling me, I want to be a police officer. Every kid wants to be a fireman or a police officer. Everybody. Um, and so it was out of whack with what the kids were telling me. I could see that we're never going to change the relationship between our people and police if we didn't start to get black people in blue uniforms. And so I just pressed on. But the more I pressed on, there was more pushback. Um, and then a miracle happened. The police reformed their region. They brought out a very senior officer at assistant commissioner level and based them in Dubbo, 100 metres away from my office. <laughs> So I took my chance. Yeah, yeah. I took my chance. Unfortunately, at the same time, here in Dubbo, there was another death in custody. Um, and it just sort of happened. Again, when the Lord has a plan, I started to understand when the Lord has a plan, it's a perfect plan. Yeah, yeah. It's not the plan that I would put in place or the timing that I would want to place on things. It's the Lord's time and the Lord's plan. And it all happened within a case of a couple, within the space of a, a month or two, I was talking to the most important person in the New South Wales Police, somewhere I probably would have never been able to, you know, uh, plan for myself or organise it. Um, and it all happened. Yeah. So what, ha what happens now, Peter? We've got a, a program called iProud. It's an Indigenous policing program. Uh, for Aboriginal people, and it's right across New South Wales. We've trained hundreds of people who've made their way into the police force. We've got a different relationship with New South Wales Police. I've met a couple of commissioners. I've met the Minister for Police. My family has met these people. We have such an important relationship. My sister has an award for all these students who do really well and overcome difficulty. There's an award for those students in her name. Wow. We've overcome so much hurt and grief and anger by having a different relationship. You know, and at the end of it, at the, at the start of all that is the forgiveness that is afforded to, to people within the New South Wales Police. Mm. That they would say sorry and we'll say, well, I forgive you. And for that to happen, and that's the transformation that has taken place in my life from that person who wanted to commit suicide because I couldn't quell the anger mm to a person who says, I, I forgive you. Yeah. And I put my arms around police officers. I've dealt with them in their grief. Yeah. I've been to many of their graduations at Goulburn. It's never happened before, but I got to speak at a graduation of police officers at the Goulburn Police Academy, talking about my sister's death and the legacy that's left in her name. That is God's blessing on my life. Wow, that's wonderful. In this community, what difference has it made to crime? At the Dubbo police station, 
there are serious numbers of Aboriginal people who's come through this program and now working in our community. It has an amazing impact on New South Wales Police. It has an amazing impact on our community because they can see that our own people are in that blue uniform, mm. that have a different attitude about their community. They can help their colleagues understand us more. They are the best educators in the world when they're sitting in a police truck with their non-Aboriginal colleague talking about their community yeah. and the way in which we deal with our own. We're not any more harder on crime than we've ever been. And so we, we take crime very seriously because it impacts on our community. All we're talking about is deepening that relationship that Aboriginal people can have and the contributions we can make. Mm. And there is no backdoor job for Aboriginal police officers. It's front and just like everybody else. But we are in the community. You can't ignore us. And we're here, we're as passionate about community as everybody else. And we got the ability to make the contributions just like you. And now after 10 or so years, that program has been running all throughout the state it's now making its uh, impact in other ways, into the federal sector, into Australian Federal Police, uh, and it's now making its way into Queensland. So it started off on that very sad, tragic start with Fiona dying in custody in Brewarrina to a program now that's getting uh, national coverage. Uh, and we're very proud of that as a family. So alongside iProud, you actually also mentor and coach football. I, I believe uh, it's, it's that opportunity to come back and, and help with what I know that I was uh, given the opportunity to do. And it's not just about the playing of the game, it's the mentoring of young people, young men. Talk to them about a whole range of issues. And in our country right now, we have the best opportunity to call on some of those issues and bring it into a football environment. Because we need to raise up fathers. Mm. We need to raise up leaders. Yeah. So I just don't see that they can pass and tackle and, and score tries. I see so much else when I look at these young people. And developing that relationship so that you can sow into young people. Yep. When they see that I can lead and talk uh, and say the same thing and do the same thing, not say and do something that different yep. in the way in which I was previously. I want to be a person who's a bit more I, I want to see, I want them to see that I am different and that, and I'm happy to be peculiar yeah. um, because you, you, you don't drink, you don't swear, you, you don't abuse us, you, you put your arm around us, you love us, you comfort us, but you still get the message through. I want them to see that coming through, that I am, I really care about them, their families and so on. So it's much, much deeper and I, I never thought about it before. But I see this great opportunity and I, I, I cherish it because uh, uh, the kids, uh, and I see them like that, they're young fellas who uh, really want to just improve their own game and I can help them do that. But I see the more opportunity is to help them in their community how important well. is sport? How important is sport for the Indigenous young people? Uh, it's such a, such a massive part of our life. Growing up on Wilmaringle where we'd never really had even a football sometimes, so we'd make something up to be something we could pass. Um, and sport is such an important fabric of our community. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, our kids were lost to it. And uh, it, particularly here in Dubbo, 
we were shunted to different parts of our city and the kids were locked away in, in, in their little enclaves. We want to bring that out. Um, so uh, my nephew, he's the coach of uh, uh, this team. He's a work boy. He's done well. He's built his trade, uh, started a family. Uh, he's a good role model uh, for young kids who can come from you know, a difficult background but still do well in your community uh, and play the game, which is so important to get our young men to be playing sport so they also get around people who are positive and to give them, to, because they're also then fathers or brothers and they become role models in their families. So it's all connected, yeah. it's all connected. But sport is uh, such an important part of our community and I don't want it to be lost on us that we are not just here playing a game of rugby league on the weekend. It's bigger than that. Yeah. It's, it's such an important part of your community and that Aboriginal people, uh, we know that we've got talent. We know that we've got people who can really play this game. Yep because they have for many, many years, generation after generation. Just look at the NRL now and see how many Aboriginal players who are making it their life. Um, but I know from my experience that it's only a, a very brief part of your life and there's more to your life and that you will bo you'll be born, you'll live for a while and then you'll die. So there's an opportunity for me to talk about some other bigger things that can happen in your life as well. The relationship between the Indigenous people of this nation um, and those who have you know, invaded the nation has, has, has always been contentious. From your experience, what do you see as the future? I can't see a future without forgiveness. In many ways, until we come to a place of understanding forgiveness, we will just go on being the hatred being perpetuated in family after family. I've come to that understanding that if we can come to a place of forgiveness, and I know because I've had to deal with it in my own heart, and only the Lord could help me deal with forgiveness, real forgiveness, not just saying sorry and moving on, but you've got to say sorry and you've got to forgive. And there's a place in which we can actually deal with this. And I know that internationally other countries are dealing with it as well. Uh, and I, brother, I just cannot see a, a place without it. I, but in many ways, we've locked Christ out of everything, mm. out of parts of our education system, particularly that. We've locked it out. We're locking it out of our parliaments now. This is what this country was built on, and we're locking Christianity out of it. And, it, and if we're doing that in our families and we're doing that, in, and we're doing that in, at important institutions like educational institutions and our, and our political systems, we're locking it out. And we, we can't ignore um, Christianity. This country is built on it. And I know my family and my life is built on it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here talking with you today. If I didn't understand what was sowed into my heart by my, my grandmother, followed on by my mum and I held on to it many years later when I was called to memory in that time of that car, in the most turbulent time I think I've had in my life, it, I was called upon the, the Christian faith. And if we could just return and get our eyes opened by our leaders, particularly in the, the most important institution we have is the educational institution, why are we blocking out Christian faith? So Peter, this series is called Faith Runs Deep. For you in Australia, how do you see faith running deep? I, I know that I've experienced it in my own life, that it was just a surface thing, and that I said I believe in the Lord and I come from a Christian family. 
And then I started to have a deeper understanding about what it is and who it is that I was following. If I'm going to make a decision for something, I really want to find out about Christ. And as you do, you cannot make another decision. How can you not make a decision to follow Christ as your example? And in terms of this country, now more than ever, now more than ever, with all of the investment in this country and the so-called wealth, why is it that we're dealing with such atrocious problems in our community? Mm. So from the leadership, I want them to have a deeper understanding of the faith that we have in this country. This is built on Christian faith. Please do not keep putting it on a shelf and please stop dismantling Christian faith from our society. Keep it in our schools, it's so important. Mm. And certainly in our political system where the laws are made. Don't put it on a shelf, don't lock it in a cupboard. It's so important for the this prosperity of our people and our country. Thank you for joining me on this podcast as I unearth stories of faith in Australia. To watch the full Faith Runs Deep series and all Olive Tree Media content, go to olivetreemedia.com.au and sign up to the Watch Plus platform and partner with us today.